Well, my hope and uh, my prayer over, over the next sessions that we're together is that, and of course in the time in between as well, is that the Lord is going to be doing some real soul work in, in, within us. And uh, as I was preparing and thinking about this weekend, and obviously it's been on my mind for quite some time now, and uh, there were two things that, that were occurring to me in which I felt like the Lord put on my heart. On the one hand, <clears throat> I was drawn to taking a look at the life of David and uh, the story in 1 and 2 Samuel and the story of that man and his, his authority and his rule and the events around his life. And on the other hand, I, was, I felt like the Lord impressed on my heart that we needed to speak into the whole theme of pride and humility. And of course, those two um, ideas map together in, in really beautiful ways. And so my intention is to try and show you some of the, the ways in which we can learn about these themes through the life of David and the events that took place in his life. Why are pride and humility such vital themes for us as Christians? I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that in some ways, this is the key to everything. There are, it's twice in the New Testament. Uh, one is in 1 Peter 5 and also in James 4. There's a line quoted from the Old Testament where we're told that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I think you can understand that verse as the great distinction that separates those outside from those inside the family of God. That God is opposed to those who are outside of his kingdom. And the, the thing that that separates them from him is pride. But then anyone who has come to believe in Christ has by definition needed to humiliate themselves before God and acknowledge your ineptitude and your inability to save yourself. You are not a Christian unless there has been a work of the humility, of the Holy Spirit's work in your heart to produce humility to enable you to accept Christ by faith. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you're in Christ's family, the humility that has enabled you to embrace Christ has mean that you've received his grace. But of course, as your Christian life then progresses and deepens and grows and matures, it is this dynamic between pride and humility that I think is so controlling of the flow and direction and the maturing of your, of your walk. And I think you'll hopefully begin to see some of that. Growth in the Christian life is killed by pride. And it is deepened by humility. So I'm excited for us all. Partly because I think as you meditate on humility and seek to embrace it more deeply, you'll experience something of its liberating power. Tim Keller said that there is nothing more relaxing than humility. It's an, it's an admission of your inability. It takes the pressure off you. It helps you to rest into the sovereignty and the, 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 uh, the supremacy and the ability of God. And so I'm excited for you to experience more of that and then also to experience the breath and the grace and the favor of God that comes on the back of the deepening, thank you buddy, of humility in your life. Such a humble man, just serving me in such a way. Thank you brother, really appreciate it. Right, to understand our story, we need to go back and just grasp a little bit of the context here. So 
the Exodus took place. Moses delivers the people of Israel from Egypt, and they spend 40 years wandering around in a wilderness. Joshua succeeds Moses and his commander-in-chief. He leads the people into the land of Canaan, and they conquer the land. And after Joshua dies, at the end of the book of Joshua, and the beginning of, book of the book of Judges, we enter a new era called the era or the time of the Judges. It lasts about 400 years. And you can basically think of it as the ancient world's equivalent of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There are all these uh, random, seemingly random characters that emerge with different gifts and abilities. You have Samson with his superhuman strength. You have Deborah with her prophetic abilities and, and prowess. You have various warrior leaders. And they arise and they begin to bring deliverance to Israel uh, whenever they're ex experiencing oppression from enemies and they lead them into renewal and repentance and these cycles of decay, spiritual decay and then repentance. And this era goes on for about 400 years. There's no... There's no um, assumption about who's leading. It's always God putting his hand on a new leader. That's how it works. And it all comes to a kind of crunch and a transition point towards the end or, or during the life of one of the, the final judge, who's the prophet Samuel. You know the story of Samuel born to, um, to Hannah, so desperate for a child. And she commits him and dedicates him to the Lord. And he becomes this extraordinary prophet. But he's also the final judge. And in his lifetime, the people of Israel begin to clamor and demand a king. They want, in their own words, to be like the other nations. They feel like the odd one out. Why don't we have a king? And so they're not satisfied with the rule of God. They rather want a man who can take authority and who can lead them in battle and who can be their figurehead. And of course, this... This then leads to this kind of transition point in history. And so we see the first three kings emerge in the history of Israel. They are King Saul, the first of, the, of them all. He is succeeded by King David, who is our hero in, in the theme this weekend. And then at one point in his life, his son Absalom takes the throne off him. And so these are the first three kings of Israel. And we're going to be looking and thinking about their stories in the round. King Saul, King David, and King Absalom. And the reason why we're looking at the three of them is because really they set up for us this contrast in terms of pride and humility. Saul and Absalom are, in many ways, the ultimate depictions of pride. David in the middle there as a model of humility, the humble king. So what I'm going to do this morning, we're going to look at Saul and Absalom and think about the events of their life and the way in which their lives demonstrate and reveal this kind of pride before we turn our attention for the rest of the weekend to David himself. We're going to think about Saul through the lens of his insecure pride, deeply insecure man. And then Absalom through the lens of his ambition and self-assurance. So let's begin by thinking about Saul. Saul, the model of insecure pride. We meet Saul in around 1 Samuel chapter 9. If you have a Bible, you may want to flick around as I jump from place to place. And what we encounter there in Saul is this very interesting contradiction. On the surface of things, he appears to us to be an extremely impressive man. Now, let me just, before I introduce him, let me just backtrack just a little bit. Before he becomes king, when the people are clamoring for a king, 
Samuel has warned them and he said to them, you know, he's very disappointed that they want this. And he says to them, look, when you have a king, this is what he'll do. He'll say, he says, he'll take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and be his horsemen to run before his chariots. He'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and hundreds and fifties to plow his ground, to reap his harvest, to make his implements of war. He'll take your daughters to turn them into perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields. He'll take, he'll take, he'll take, he'll take, he'll take. And the people still want their king. And so God sort of allows them to have a king. And he tells Samuel, anoint Saul. He's going to be the first king. And so we, we bump into Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 9. This is what we learn about him. We learn about a man called Kish who has a son whose name was Saul. This is 1 Samuel 9 verse 2. A handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So the first thing we learn about him is how ridiculously, really, really ridiculously good looking he is. <laughs> and uh, how tall he is. And, uh, you know, he's kind of the stature of a Caesar or a Peter, one of these guys who really stands out here. And as we know, in life, height and good looks are an advantage. I can tell you all about that, of course. But <laughs> they open doors for you. And uh, we, this is such a recognized phenomenon that its opposite is, of course, described as the, the Napoleonic complex, the short man syndrome, where guys overcompensate for their lack of height by being absur absurdly aggressive and assertive and trying to compensate all the time because we recognize that physical features do give you an advantage. They open doors, they grease wheels, they make things easier for you. Um, you may not have the gifting to back it up, but let's say if you're good looking, things will happen for you. And so this is how we're introduced to him. It's an interesting way to introduce him. And uh, God instructs Samuel, anoint him as king. But as soon as Samuel meets Saul, he's a young man at the time, and Saul has no idea what's going on. And God's told him that he's going to be the next king. Uh, Saul, he recoils at this. And this is where the contradiction is revealed. You see in chapter 9, verse 21, that Saul immediately objects to Samuel. He says, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel. So this was the smallest tribe. And he says, is not my clan or my family the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me this way? So as a boy meeting the prophet Samuel, the first thing he does is he resists, he rejects it. He says, you know, Samuel's saying to him, you're going to be the next king. And he says, absolutely no chance. Samuel then calls the nation together for this ceremony or this kind of prophetic procedure in which they begin to draw lots. So they draw a lot for the tribe from which the next king will come and they draw a lot for the clans. And then eventually they draw lots and the lot falls upon Saul. So God's prophetic word is now confirmed by the drawing of lots. This kind of what seems like a random chance event, but is ultimately guided by, guided by God's sovereign hand. And here's what happens. It tells us that as the lot was taken for Saul, it says when they sought him, he could not be found. And so they go looking for him and it says, behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. You know, it's like the coach driving up here. He's hiding in the compartment underneath while everybody is looking for him. 
And then we're told again that when he stood up, so they pull him out, they grab him, they bring him into the crowd. It says, when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. Now, what is going on here? This extraordinarily advantaged guy, he's won the genetic lottery. And yet he is absolutely determined that he is not the right person. And it seems to me that what he's experiencing is the mother of all imposter syndromes. I think all of us have at some point of life, unless you have unbelievable self-assurance, we've all experienced this imposter syndrome at some time, right? Where you've gone into an environment where you've been given responsibility above your, uh, above your ability, above your ability to actually carry out the role. And so you have begun to shrink into yourself and begun to think, if they find out, I'm out of here. And many of you probably go to work every day feeling a little bit like that about yourself. And so he's feeling, this is the mother of all imposter syndrome, because here he is, a boy taken from nowhere, and now being asked to be king of the 12 tribes of Israel, to fall in the line of succession of leaders and rulers, of great heroes that he'd read about and heard about, and the stories that he knew of the judges and before them, of Joshua, before him of Moses, this kind of unbelievable distinction that's falling on his shoulders. And the question is, why did God choose him? And it doesn't seem to be the case that he was chosen because he was qualified. I think rather what's going on is that God chose him because he's giving the people what they want. They just want a king who will be their leader so that they can be like the other nations. And it seems to me that this is just the way people are wired. We we long for and yearn for leadership, and we often look to the externals and to the show, and God's saying, well, this is what you want. Here, have him. And so this king is appointed. Before long, the flaws in his character begin to emerge. I want you to think about it like this, that his insecurity is like a fault line in his character. You know what a fault line is? It's the, the join between the tectonic plates of the earth. And where fault lines exist between plates, as movement happens, perhaps they grind next to each other or one is slowly overlapping another. That's where earthquakes happen. That's where great uh, these, these natural disasters take place. And there's a fault line that runs down the western coast of the United States. And hence why there's so many earthquakes that have hit that side of the nation. And wherever there's a fault line in your character, when stresses are put upon you, and you find yourself in situations in which you cannot cope and you're in over your head, that is when the flaws of your character will begin to emerge. And this is exactly what we see here. He looks the part, but he does not have the substance to back up his, his, uh, his authority and rule. And so immediately he begins to get into trouble. The first thing that happens is, he performs an unlawful sacrifice. He's called to his people to battle against the Philistines. And he's waiting for the prophet Samuel to come and bring a, a burnt offering and a sacrifice to God to bless their battle. But Samuel's taking his sweet time. He takes like a week to arrive. And as Saul is losing patience, he begins to see how the people are beginning to scatter. They're kind of losing their passion. They're losing their interest. They're no longer wanting to engage in a battle. They've been camping for too 
long. And so he takes matters into his own hands and he begins, he makes a sacrifice for himself, which it was not lawful for him as the king to do. And Samuel arrives and he smells the fragrance of the offering in the air. And he knows that something has gone very badly wrong here. And he begins to challenge Saul. Why did this happen? He makes excuses. He says, the people were scattering you weren't coming. Where were you? And Samuel just says to him, stop. And he says these poignant words. He says, now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is the first exposure of the fault line. The deep insecurity in him, this prideful insecurity, as I'm going to show you, means that as soon as he's in a very tense situation, he chooses the route of people-pleasing. The people are needing this sacrifice so that they can stay together and engage in battle, and Saul is not willing to wait for God's will to be done. He takes matters into his own heart. The fault line in his character leads to this inappropriate behavior, this disobedience against God. And all is rooted in this insecurity. The next episode takes place a few chapters later, in chapter 15. God has commanded Saul to defeat the Amalekites, one of their arch enemies. And in defeating them, he is to put to death all of his captors and their animals and the plunder to destroy everything and not to take anything for themselves. But Saul disobeys. The people find the plunder attractive and they keep it for themselves. And again, Samuel arrives. And as he arrives, he hears the, the bleating of sheep and the mooing of the oxen and all the animals that they've taken from the Amalekites. And he questions what is happening. And Samuel's challenge to, to Saul here in chapter 15, verse 17, is just brutal. He says, I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. He says, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? In other words, you have acted down to the smallness of the way you see yourself and to your desire, your desperate need to please people around you because of this yawning hunger, this gap, this need to be liked and to be loved and to be affirmed. Instead of acting up to the calling that God put on you as the head. And when God had called him and positioned him, he wasn't just responsible for himself and his own decisions. He was responsible for the entire nation. And Saul's saying, you're acting down, Samuel's saying, you're acting down to your worst intuitions and characteristics instead of acting up to the calling that God has put on your life. The fault line is exposed again. And perhaps the most important event in, in, in Saul's life is the arrival of young David. And this is where the inflammation goes crazy in Saul's heart. What we've seen, the fault line, the problem, the insecurity, 
the sense of inadequacy, the sense of smallness, the sense of inability that he's constantly, desperately trying to hide. It's aggravated. Ask the question, what is the worst nightmare for an insecure leader? And the answer is a younger, more gifted leader emerging. Maybe this will happen while I'm on sabbatical, who knows? You know. <laughs> Why does Putin poison his enemies? Because he needs to be in charge. He needs approval. He needs to shut down dissent. Why does Trump make up stupid nicknames? You know, the leader wants the leader of the free world making up ridiculous nicknames for his opponents. Well, it's just desperate insecurity and needing approval and needing to be liked and to be admired and to be the, the, the top dog, isn't it? And you see, here's what happens in Saul's life. You know, God's already said to Saul, I've rejected you and I'm, after, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for a man after my own heart. And secretly, God has selected David. David arrives on the scene as the giant slayer. He's the boy who arrives up on the battle scene as the two armies are arrayed in front of each other, the Philistines on one side of the valley, the Israelites on the other side of the valley, and Goliath every morning walking into the middle of the valley and shouting, Send a champion to come and fight me. And whoever wins, the other side will, will, uh, will surrender. And Goliath defies the armies. And David rocks up to the battle a few days into it to bring some supplies to his brothers. And this boy hears the cry of this giant. And he says, I'll take him on. And he begins to prepare himself, readies himself. And Saul entrusts to him the responsibility. And he goes into the battle he, sli he slays Goliath. And of course, the effect on Saul is very interesting. David immediately ascends to being the commander-in-chief of the Israelite army out of nowhere. And of course, this is a double-edged thing for Saul because on the one hand, he's got this unbelievably gifted youngster leading his army, freeing them from the Philistines. But on the other hand, he now has a competitor. And it all comes to a bit of a crunch for Saul when the girls start making up pop songs. So as they sing to each other, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. It's not very catchy, I know. But this is what they're singing. They're running around. They're singing the songs. And, uh, and Saul hears this song. You know, it's very popular. That he probably, his, you know, kids in the palace are singing it as well. And... Uh, he doesn't like this song for obvious reasons. And here's what it says. It says, Saul was very angry. This is chapter 18, verse 8. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? You know, if he's already regarded as more brilliant and capable and credible than me, then he's already taken everything. The only other thing left to him is the kingdom itself. You see how his brain begins to spiral into this really strange place. And it says, Saul eyed David from that day on. He looks at him and begins to grow deeply suspicious about this gifted youngster. The next day when he sees David, we're told that he lobs a spear at him. You know, just a random act of rage and anger and malice. It says, he hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Now, 
what is going on here? What you're seeing, of course, is that the toxic mixture of envy and anger and all aggravated by fear because of the deep sense of the gaping, yawning inadequacy within his soul, his desperate need to be loved and to be liked and to be admired by people and to be acknowledged as the best. And of course, as soon as the praise is shifting from him to this young man, David, he cannot tolerate it. And it turns into fear or what we would really describe as a kind of paranoia in his soul. You look at chapter 18, verse 15, it says, When Saul saw that he, David, had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. And it gets worse because it tells us in the end of that chapter, verse 28, When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, so his daughter's fallen in love with David, now, woe betide any unworthy young man who, who your daughter falls for. Just want to leave that thought hanging there <laughs> one day. Saul was even more afraid of David. And Saul was David's enemy continually. Now, friends, I don't know whether you've seen this before. It may even be true in your own soul. Bullies are always fearful people. You may have encountered one or two in your time. They're people who cannot tolerate others outshining them and assert themselves over others by unkindness and even malice or anger, and in this case, a kind of murderous violence. And so he plots to kill him. He tells his son, Jonathan, all his top servants that they should kill him. He's given the official command, kill David. And all of it rooted in this gnawing paranoia deep inside his brain. How is this an expression of pride? Some of you might think about Saul as someone who's in some ways too humble because he's got such a small view of himself, right? Too low self-esteem, we'd call it today. We tend to think of pride as swagger, and we're going to look at that soon because that's Absalom. We're going to see that in abundance in a moment. But I actually think that insecurity, as you see it in the life of Saul, is something that looks a bit like humility on the surface, but really is a form of false humility. It's really self-obsession. He's utterly obsessed with himself, his appearance. It's why he's fearful to take on the kingly role to begin with. Sometimes fear is an unworthy response within a Christian. It's what Jesus said in the parable of the talents, isn't it? When the, the one talent man buried his talent in the ground and the master came back and said, you wicked servant. And he says, I was afraid. And if you actually think about that, that, that strikes us as deeply unfair, doesn't it? That the master called him wicked because he fearfully buried his talent in the ground. But I think if you begin to understand what's really going on here, and look at it through the lens of a man like Saul, who initially recoiled at the kingship, and then once he's given it, desperately wants to retain it, because this is his only means of building his identity and his security and securing the approval of others. You can begin to see that the fear, the terror that was lurking in his soul, is really a form of self-obsession. 
Listen to how Gavin Ortland defines humility and think about the contrast here. It's a wonderful little book called Humility, which I recommend, but Gavin Ortland puts it like this. He says, humility breeds strength, not weakness, and resilience because it frees us from the restricting needs of the ego. The need to be in charge, the need to look good, the need to defend ourselves and so on. Humble people are often marked by a healthy ability to speak their minds on a given subject. They are not distracted by the burdens of constant self-regard and self-assessment. So he's, he's defining their humility as the liberty from thinking about yourself and needing to affirm yourself. A humble person doesn't really think about themselves. They're just thinking about the ways that they can be a blessing to the world. And therefore, when you, you, when, you, when you contrast that definition of humility against the life of Saul, you begin to see how Paul's, Saul's fundamental problem was his deep, toxic pride, his absolute obsession with himself that reveals itself in this kind of insecurity that gives birth to envy and anger and fear and all of these negative emotions. His whole identity built upon his ability to prove himself. Is that you? Do you feel that desperate need to prove yourself? To seek affirmation in order to demonstrate to the world that you're special? To silence the doubts and the uncertainties about yourself by accomplishment, by putting others down, by asserting your position. This is all the kind of pride we're talking about. And we see it in Saul's life in his disobedience to God because only the proud disobey. And we see it also in his envy and paranoia towards David because only the proud are envious. Let me just quickly dwell on envy for a second. Because envy is perhaps one of the most useful diagnostics of pride. It's a, it's a window into pride. Gavin Ortland, he quotes Aquinas on this, who said that envy is defined as sorrow for another's good. You want to know if you have a proud heart? You feel sorry when other people experience blessing. And he goes on and says that envy is the most miserable sin. Remember, this is what was fermenting in Saul's, Saul's soul. Hard to say together. I got it there. He says, this is what envy is. He says, there is no joy in your life that cannot be destroyed by envy. No matter what you have, envy can say, yes, you might have X, but you don't have Y. There is no heaven that envy cannot make into a hell. All of us have experienced this at one point or another. Envy is a diagnostic of the prideful soul. By the way, Ortland tells a lovely little anecdote about this. So his, this, his name is Gavin Ortland. His brother is Dane Ortland, the author of, um, uh, what's it called? Gentle. Gentle and Lowly, yeah. I think at one stage it was Jeremy's favorite book in the world, wasn't it? It was, yeah. So you, many of you heard about it. And, and Gavin Ortland heard about it a lot from lots of people coming up to him and saying, your brother's book. <laughs> wow, we love, Gentle Lowly has blessed me so much. And every time he heard that, the people blessing, he'd have to pray for the effectiveness of his brother's book. He prayed that God would use it. And he, he goes on and says, I prayed that so many copies would be sold that everybody on earth would have a copy and they'd have to sh start shipping them into outer space to bless the aliens. 
It's like, this is how you deal with envy. You, you heap blessing back on the people who, who you're envious of. What does God t- say, tell, tell us about pride? He says, God opposes the proud. And this is what we see. God opposes Saul again and again. He says, I'm going to take the kingdom off you. And it all stems from the toxicity of this insecure pride and the way that it causes him to disobey God and bully others. God, deal with our insecurities. Let us know nothing but security in our identity in Christ, that we can be peace-filled, humble people. That's Saul. Now let's turn to Absalom. Now we're moving to many decades later. Saul dies. David becomes king. David has his own children. The third of his children is a young man named Absalom. Absalom is both similar to and perhaps the opposite to Saul in some ways. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 14. 2 Samuel 14. Verse 25. This is what we learn about him. This is, he, he's also distinguished for his just being bloody good looking. It says, now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. I'd love to know how the author knew this. You know, was there some kind of procedure by which they said, okay, let's start with the soles of his feet. Let's have a quick look at these feet then, shall we? And they examine his feet. They look at the length of the toes. They look at the nails, any ingrown nails. They say, no, these feet are perfect feet. It's ridiculous. They go up to his calves. And, you know, they're not the big fat calves. They're not the little skinny calves. These are perfect calves. They're just perfectly proportioned. They go to his knees. They're not knobbly knees. They're beautiful knees. They're thighs. Look at those quads. I mean... Man, those quads. He's, and he doesn't even have to do any squats. He's just, they're just natural. He's got quads. He's got hamstrings. He's got them all. They keep going up. I think we'll stop there. But he's perfect from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. Absalom is the vision of perfection. It tells us a little bit more about him. It says, when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. That is 2.2 kilograms of hair. Do not trust a man with that much hair. (laughs) Do not trust a man with that much hair. You imagine how, what a vision he was as he walked around Jerusalem. I mean, he must have had admirers flinging themselves at him. The beauty of his flowing locks that just grew. They're like, that time of year again, let's weigh Absalom's hair. And then it starts to grow, and a few months in, they're like, it's really growing again. <laughs> He's still got his hair. You know, I imagine. I imagine this hair looks a bit like yours, Matt. That's how I imagine. Does anyone know Matt? Matt, why don't you give us a twirl as well? I think we'll just, come on, look at this hair. Look at this hair. Imagine. In that way, he's quite similar to Saul, isn't he? Both of them distinguished by their, their, their abundant 
absolutely blessed good looks. But he's different in this. Whereas Saul had this, this, this agonizing insecurity that longed for the approval of people, Absalom has this profound sense of self-assurance. He's certain that he's God's gift to the world. He's like Gaston in Beauty and the Beast, you remember? <laughs> Just strutting around and singing. And, and uh, his story is in some ways more straightforward than, than Saul's, but also just more sad, I think. And it goes like this. It begins with a terrible, terrible injustice. He has a, a sister called Tamar. They're full brother and sister, the same mother. And he has a half-brother called Amnon. They have different mothers. Amnon is the oldest of David's sons. And Amnon falls in love with Tamar, his half-sister. And he comes up with a plot to rape her. And he rapes his half-sister. And Absalom learns about this situation. And he feels the rage at the violation of what has happened to his precious sister. And listen, here's where it all goes wrong. This is David's reaction. It tells us in 2 Samuel 13, verse 21, that when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Full stop. David, as we know, was not a perfect king. And this is one example of that. He got angry, but that's all he did. He just felt angry. That's not enough, is it, in a situation like this? He should have done a great deal more than feel angry. But he has a conflict of interest. His daughter's been raped by his son, the firstborn. What can he do? And so Absalom takes matters into his own hands. He kills Amnon. And I think all of us can understand the reason. I think all of us can feel the rage. It begins to unravel for Absalom because his relationship with his father, David, then begins to turn very sour. David exiles Absalom. He doesn't want to put Absalom to death for murder, which he could have done. He exiles Absalom, sends him out of Jerusalem. And after some time, he's allowed to come back to Jerusalem. But this is what we said. David said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He's not able to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. So here's this young man, full of self-assurance, certainty about his own brilliance, executing justice against his brother by killing the rapist and now experiencing nothing but the displeasure of his father. He is being overlooked. He is being ignored. He's being sidelined, and it is not fair. And that sense of injustice gnaws at his soul because he knows he can put things to right. And it turns into this interesting scheme. Let me read to you the beginning of chapter 15. This is what Absalom begins to do. It says, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses, and 50 men to run before him. So he assembles all of the visual props of, of, uh, of, sta of status and authority. He begins to look like a prince. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. Now, in the ancient world, the gate was like 
the town hall and the courts of justice all rolled into one. It was the place where business deals were done and it's the place where justice was dealt. And so he stands at the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I would judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. So there he is. He's fermenting problems because everybody who's traveling to go and see David for David's justice is being diverted by Absalom. He's saying, come, come talk to me. I think you've got a good claim here. He's like an ambulance chaser with the, you know, the lawyers saying, no, no win, no fee, but I think I can do you justice on this situation. And so he begins to, to encourage people to turn to him for judgment. He says, oh, that I were king. Now, can you see what's going on here? All of this has stemmed from his, his right observation that his father doesn't know how to deal out justice in every situation. He didn't deal with Amnon. And Absalom is, 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 has got this growing sense that he is the answer to the problem. And this is pride, isn't it? Pride often will exhibit itself in your life as a deep sense of frustration with the incompetencies of those around you and above you. And then also a firm sense of belief in yourself. I am the answer. And the result is that he begins to win the hearts of the nation. It tells us in chapter 15, verse 5, that whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And as Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel by presenting himself as the answer which David is not he began to scheme and plot and draw away affection away from David and towards himself and finally this all comes to a crunch when Absalom commits treason he travels south to Hebron under the guise of wanting to enter into a worship service and uh, so David lets him go and while he's in Hebron Hebron, this is what he says. He sent out secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. And so war is begun. This is treason. It's civil war. He goes to war against his own father. So angry is he, so certain is he of his ability to rule and his gifting that supersedes his father's. What are the marks of Absalom's pride? If we've seen that Saul's pride was this, this extraordinary gaping fault line in his character, Absalom's pride is similar in that it's also self-centeredness. But it's here expressed as self-belief, self-assurance, self-promotion. And therefore it puts him in opposition to David and therefore also to God. This is what happens whenever you begin to want to take matters into your own hands in life. You don't trust God. You don't trust his sovereignty. You don't trust that he's the one who promotes and demotes. You think, I'm the answer. And begin to plot and scheme and find a way to promote and to position yourself in such a way that you 
are visible and you are seen and you are praised. And of course, the result of all this is that God opposes him too. Do you know how he dies? In that, ba- in that war with his father David, as he's fleeing from some of David's soldiers, he's riding on a mule, a kind of a donkey. And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. It was the hare, friends. The hare was his downfall. Be warned, Matt, my brother. The hare was his downfall. It's an interesting thing. I think it's one of those poetic justices that you see in Scripture where God, in his wonderful way, shows us in a very visible, memorable, almost tangible way that the thing that you take pride in will be the cause of your downfall. And when you are so full of self-assurance in your own abilities and the, the graces on your life that you're gifting, be warned because God opposes the proud and he may well cause that to be the very thing which causes you to, to fall. God opposes the proud. And we've seen this twice, haven't we? We've seen God opposing Saul in all of his insecurity and now we've seen him opposing Absalom in all of his ambition. And we have these two contrasting portraits of pride. What do they have in common? Well, they're both unusually physically distinguished. I really don't have a problem with with good-looking people, but that is just an observation about them. They both operate without reference to God or reverence for God. And they're both consumed with themselves. But here's the difference. One of them is insecure so that his identity is built upon the affirmation of others. He needs the praise of man to feel good about himself. And his greatest fear in life is being found out and being rejected. And that makes him dangerous. It means that it turns into this envy, this paranoia in the presence of gifted people. Does that in any way resemble something that happens in your heart? It's good to acknowledge it, to see it for what it is. This is how the Lord exposes our souls. The other one is arrogant. His identity is not built on the praise of others. His identity is really built on his own inflated view of himself. He doesn't need people to tell him he's brilliant. He knows it. And his greatest fear is having, not having the opportunity to shine, to allow others to appreciate his wonderful brilliance. And therefore, he's happy. In fact, he thinks he owes it to the world to push himself forward into those positions, even by devious, surreptitious, scheming means. What about you, brother or sister? 